Welcome to the Hot Stove Society Show on Cairo. I'm Chef Tom Douglas. And I'm Terry Rotiro, the chef in the hat. Uh, we are happy that you've joined us today. Hopefully you're out and about in your garden or on the road or uh, in your kitchen, wherever you are listening to us. We're happy to be part of your day. Uh, we are uh, going to talk so much about uh, pears today. What do you pair that with? Uh, a pair of pears, two different flavors. Um, I have. Uh, I am chef owner of several Seattle businesses, including the Serious Takeout out in Ballard, Sea Town Restaurant at the north end of the Pike Place Market area, and of course, uh, we are coming to you from the Hot Stove Society, which is in the Hotel Andra, the beautiful hotel just uh, being remodeled as we speak. The World Headquarter. Hot Stove Society. The world headquarters of the Hot Stove Society here at the Hotel Andre, 4th and Virginia, downtown Seattle. We have a large show, two full hours, uh, peak of the season, pears. I was driving through a pear orchard the other day on my way back from uh, the farm. I took the back roads into uh, I-82. Uh-huh. And God, the pears are just hanging so beautiful. One of my boss f- hanging. One of my favorite fruit. Yeah. Me too. Pear, to when it's ripe, pear. is like peach to me. It's like yeah. peach and pear are both Extreme beautiful fruit. We're going to delve into what Food & Wine calls a list of pantry staples. And I'm curious if their list matches any of our list that we do here. Pork tenderloin. Our producer, Pamela Hinckley, has a love affair with pork tenderloin, and I do not. <laughs> and so we're going to discuss those reasons. It's a uh, raging battle. It's a raging battle. Uh, but whatever. Uh, my daughter, who loves her air fryer, and I have a disagreement about whether that piece of machinery is an essential kitchen uh, need. So um, she loves hers. Uh, we're so thankful for the contributions of James Beard and Julia Child to American Cuisine. Why is that? Uh, they seem more like movie stars than chefs, but they are quintessential American cuisine. Pairing food and wine, are there really any rules or just what tastes good to you? That's my trick in the game. And lastly, uh, after the end of our second hour, we're going to play our Rub with Love Food for Thought Tasty Trivia Challenge. Uh, and uh, why not? Why shouldn't we? Because Who's a victim of the fun. day? Last week I got skunked. I had to pay for, uh, <laughs> I had to pay for the, the prize and for the shipping. And I'm sick of that. I, today I'm going to come out swinging. I wonder what the theme is going to be today. Pam, any hint? <laughs> What's the theme? Maybe James and Julia. Oh, oh. oh Tom's definitely going to score big on that one. We will see. Okay, it's time for our Taste of the Week. You know, every week we talk about some little tidbit that has piqued our fancy. Uh, and, um, uh, Chef, you don't often come in raving about somebody else's product. Usually you come in and tell us how great a cook you are <laughs> and how delicious everything you make is. Oh, and that is how not perfect true. It is. Oh, come on. Chili yes, crisp is one of my favorite things oh, in my, my fridge. God, I use yes. it every day almost. But today you said you actually enjoyed something that somebody else made. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, today I enjoyed, uh, not today, a couple of days ago, actually a week ago when it was Adrian's birthday. He was born in 1994. Adrian is our youngest son. And um, he has I, the jawline of Mount Rushmore. I'm telling you right oh, now. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's definitely. A, he could be a, a statue. Yeah, he's he's awesome. But um, for his birthday, um, I pulled out a. I, I put some wine away from 1994 for him. Obviously, I did the same thing with Ryan for 1990. It's easier 1990 to 94. But 94, I had a bottle of Seven Hills. Um, which is in Walla Walla, right at the White House Crawford there. The winery is right there. And um, Seven Hills Clipson Vineyard, 1994. Now, I've kept that bottle for 
25 years or 24 years. And I had no idea what was going to come out of that bottle. I was like crossing my finger, thinking, you know what? Yes, sir, sir, sir. That's, it this doesn't is, matter, does it? This is a time to drink it. It's not only time, but I'll, I'll just add in that it's also it's an experiment. It's fun, exactly, it's fun exactly. to see how it lasts. So I popped it at about 2 o'clock in the afternoon um, and smelled it, tasted it. It was beautiful. No cork, no, you know, no, mm-hmm. no bad thing. I was like totally fine. I decanted it, put it in the decanter and left it there, covered with a little napkin just so the fruit fly wouldn't get around and left it there for... Five hours. Mm-hmm. And the wine was absolutely scrumptious. I want to say to the McLellan, um, beautiful work, beautiful work. This wine was young the whole time, was beautiful. It was not woody. It, was not, it, was, it had the character of a beautifully well-made wine. And um, for Washington State, I've had many. I still have some Leonetes and some uh, Woodwood Canyon and some Quilicida Creek, mm-hmm. you know, all the vintages as well. But Seven Hills is, you don't hear about Seven Hills very much. This is an outstanding wine. And it wasn't that expensive when I bought it. Mm-hmm. And I remember buying it actually at the winery in Walla Walla. Uh, we did a trip there once and a meeting with the McLellan. And, and that was definitely a, a great, I just want to give a big shout out to the wine because, and to nice. the winery. That it's is, not, uh, Clips and Vineyards got a wonderful reputation. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think I mean, that's part of why it aged so well. Right. Uh, my taste of the week, uh, you know, uh, on Saturday night, I I didn't officiate because officiate means you actually married the people, right? Right. Mm-hmm. But I was the chef officiant of the dinner for a wedding here at the hot stove. Awesome. Uh, and over the years, I've you know, I'm a junk collector uh, on eBay. I like certain things. And one of the things I really like are those old fashioned uh, wedding cake toppers of the man and the woman and sometimes they're in the oldest ones are in lead the newer ones now are plastic but in the 50s and early 60s they had chalkware toppers and i have a collection of those here and we set up the the room here these are some people who were good customers of ours who decided to have their wedding here and they brought their family there's 24 people and we uh, pamela set up the room with all my cake toppers my wedding cake toppers in the center and we had a really nice wedding feast and it struck me how good it was to have people back in our world uh, who could just kind of hang out, have a good time. They were in their bubble. Grandmas were here. Little babies were here. It was such a classic kind of feast. And so uh, they had picked the menu. Uh, we have a menu called Tom's uh, what, Tom's greatest Favorites hits. or Tom's Classics or Greatest Hits or something like that. So I made crab cakes for the first time that I've made crab cakes in over two years you know, I have a book about crab cakes, and so, uh, but it was funny to make them, and then they were the favorite dish of the night. And, and crab cakes seem old fashioned; they are probably yeah, a little old fashioned. But uh, we had picked the crab out of the uh, paleo crab that we had gotten, and it was just a delicious, fun, exciting post COVID. I, I hate to say post because it's not over, but post. The year and a half or whatever we've been dealing <laughs> yeah, with. Past, past, post what we know. It was a next step, and I really enjoyed it, and I think the folks had a really nice time uh, here at the, at the hot stove. And we've done plenty of rehearsal dinners where families kind of cook together or compete against each other that right. don't know each other. And it's really a nice way to communicate. It could be a great way to intro a family or break a family. <laughs> <laughs> no. But, uh, but th- these uh, kind folks had their wedding here, and it was super fun, and uh, we appreciate that they chose us 
to have their celebration with. Uh, it's, and it's it was unique. You know, there was um, you don't see that very often for nice, a wedding. It's nice to get together. that old feeling back. Everyone, yeah, everyone, all the family groups broke up and they all made a different dish that they then sat down and ate here in the middle of the hot stove. So that's my taste of the week, a crab cake of all things. Up next, it's peak of the season pair time on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Welcome back to the Hot Stove Society on Cairo Radio. Despite our distractions, we are going to continue on with the show. Chef in the Chapeau, you're here. That's right. Here and alive and kicking and loving every minute of it. Enjoying your retirement, getting all your paperwork done. That's right. Uh, doing all the fun things that go with uh, closing down your last business. That's right. Uh, pears. Uh, when I was driving back from uh, our farm, I was took this uh, back road... I found a few things that I didn't even know were near the farm. One was a pallet rehabilitation <laughs> thing out in the middle of nowhere. Mountains, literally mountains of pallets uh, that were getting, you know, they take apart the broken ones and then they use those parts to rebuild certain not so damaged ones. And there were mountains of pallets. I bet there were 10,000 pallets in this one yard. Uh, but then I also drove into or through some pear orchards which is some of the last hanging fruit out there in eastern Washington. So beautiful. They were right next to the Concord grapes, which are all purple right now. The hops, which are being cut from their ropes and their trellises. Uh, it is just the, the whole valley is alive right now. And, uh, and it makes you feel like you know where your food comes from when you see that kind of activity. I think pear to me is a highlight. Pear and huckleberry always reminds me of fall. Yeah. Those two different... I mean, one is a berry, obviously, and the other one is a fruit. But um, those two ingredients remind me so much of, like, this is when fall starts, and that's, that's when all the tomatoes are just falling to the ground, and <laughs> you need to put them in a sauce and put them away. But pears, oh, I love So pears. my favorite pear dessert is a little pear tart that I make. It's, it's been on the menu on and off at the Dahlia for so its entire the existence. The little caramel sauce. I've had it yeah, many times. Yeah, caramel. And when I take the pear, and it... Uh, I try to use a ripe pear, but if you don't have quite ripe pears, uh, you have to uh, poach them a little bit longer, right? So the riper right. the pear, a ripe pear might only take three minutes to poach, whereas a green pear might take 20 minutes to poach, all on low. Right. Uh, and I, I take sugar water, or I'll take a bottle of Riesling with some water and some vanilla bean, and then s- gently uh, peel the pears. I take a melon baller to take the core out because it leaves a nice... Um, perfect hole in the where the core was so when you slice it and you go to artfully present the pear on top of your tart uh it looks good and i take a little piece of puff pastry a little square i spread on some frangipan which is almond paste eggs sugar egg yolks i think Mm -hmm. is what we use uh egg sugar and maybe a little vanilla and maybe a, a crack of black pepper and i put that almond paste on my puff pastry i put my sliced poached pear on my puff pastry Pop it in a hot oven, 425, and watch that puff pastry just grow up around the pear. And you get a beautiful little tart, which we always served with uh, homemade caramel sauce. And yeah. That's, uh, I like Anjou pears for that. Uh, yeah, Anjou pears are really good for baking, for sure. Yeah. Um, I'm a big fan of frangipan. I think almond and pears mm-hmm. as a dessert is a great combination that nobody has reinvented because it's just so delicious. Don't mess with the good stuff. You know, exactly. It's, I think you make a frangipan, like you said, and then you put your pears on it and you bake the whole thing together. Even if you don't have the dough, you can do that in a Pyrex pan, you know, and, and just put it in the oven just like that. And you still have a, 
nice little cake of pear, you know, then you can cut. Um, I think it's a wonderful fruit. It's a great, um, I love um, pickling pears, lightly pickled, and then use that in salads and use that on garnishes for uh, cheese tray or, you know, different different nuts oh. to mix with pears. Toasted walnut goes also very well with uh, pears. It's a Gorgonzola it's, seems to go great with yeah, pears. blue in general. Here's a question I have, um, because I can't handle pears that are not at least softened oh, yeah. through ripeness. Yeah. But an apple, I have no problem. You, you, we crave a crisp apple, right, right. But, we, but a crisp pear is just never, there's not one way that I like that. I no, don't it's, think it's, it's developed missing, its flavor it's, yet. Or, I think it's missing its beauty. It's not mature yet. Mm-hmm. To me, a pear that's hard as a rock is not a pear yet. Mm-hmm. It's not a, 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 a ripe pear. You know, it's, it needs to be ripened. The apple, the difference between the apple and the pear is that the ripe apple still has crispiness in it. Mm-hmm. If it's become soft, that's because it's, it's overripe. overripe. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's the difference. But the, I mean, pears in general, especially in, um, in savory, does a great job because it's usually has beautiful flavor in the mouth. It's also sweet. Mm-hmm. So you take that and you mix it with a little vinegar or a little acid or a little lime, lemon, whatever you do, and you can end up with something that, has a, that is a great vessel to cut through the richness of whatever you're eating with that. That's why it goes well with blue, you know, when you yeah. eat a blue cheese. Or it goes well with uh, cold cuts. You know, if you do, uh, let's say you have leftover roast beef, you make some sliced roast beef and you, put, you make a nice little uh, pear chutney next to that. That can be delicious. You mix that with a little bit of onion, diced pear, a little white vinegar, uh, cardamom, and then you put the whole thing together as a cook, cook as a stew and then cool it off and use that as a garnish to your cold meat. That makes an easy one. Lots of fresh herb on top. Yeah. Boom, you've got a wonderful little thing. And one of my f- favorite uh, savory pear ideas is to take a Bosque pear, which is mm-hmm. down that they're darker brown. Correct. They've got the long neck on them, almost always have a stem sticking out, so they're, yeah. they're pretty. So if you take that and you take a half inch off the bottom so that it can stand up, and then I take a melon baller and I'll reach up into that pear and take the core out Correct. Uh, as far up as I can reach, and then I stuff that with uh, goat cheese and toasted nuts or something of that nature. Uh, but first, I, I, I got ahead of myself. I'll take that pear after I core it. Mm-hmm. I poach it in red wine. Right. And it comes out this beautiful burgundy color or claret colored uh, yeah. pear, right? Yeah. And you poach it long enough that it's tender. And then you pull it out. And now I can slice that up and put little slices with arugula on top of a pizza or I can stuff that pear with a little goat cheese and toasted nut mm. and serve it as a salad. You don't even need any greens. You just no. have this cool, beautiful, room-temperature, red wine poached pear salad that is very unusual, and it's very striking on a plate because it stands up and looks like a pear because right? yeah. you leave the stem on. And, uh, and greens, if you're going to match it with green, I think arugula, fresh arugula, not something not that head you, lettuce. Not, yeah, not, sure. not something not you buy. Romaine salad. No. You need something that has piquant to it, that has a, a bite to it. Mm-hmm. And if you match that with a nice little poached pear, it's delicious as, yeah. a, as a salad. It's absolutely fantastic. Brie, even though it's not very a good brie, not a, not a piece of plaster, but some very ripe brie where it's runny and very, very strong. You take that and you match that with a pear. It's also very, very mm-hmm. delicious. Now, do you like that with a raw sliced pear? Yes. I like, like an Anjou or a... Not an Anjou. I would probably use a Bartlett. Uh-huh. Because bartlets are actually delicious to eat by themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, I think it's a nice ripe pear. When it's ripe, a beautiful bartlet can be so delicious. 
very tasty and right. you slice that and you put your but it should almost be like a peach softness right correct you know when it's yeah, yeah. ripe you're, you've got it's got give you know very often um when we bought bartlett at the restaurant we would buy them a week before we need them oh at least yeah. and then we put them outside on sheet pan and cover them for just cover them with a cheesecloth and let them ripen, you know, finish to, to get that sugar out. Mm-hmm. And then a week later, and they go, when we get them, they're green. By the time they ripen, they're yellow. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, but a good bartlet ripen is just, you bite into that, it's just like magical. Yeah. And by the way, school lunch, absolutely put a bartlet in there. You know, so your kid can eat that beautiful, sweet fruit at lunchtime. Delicious. You know, one of the hardest things to do is get a ripe pear at a grocery store because... Right. Uh, as soon as they go ripe, then they only have a day left, right? And yeah. so the grocery stores don't want to get stuck with overripe pears, which to me, I wish they would have a section of overripe, overripe fruit because yeah. they don't know if you're making apple, you know, pear sauce or That's pear butter. That's a great idea. I, I don't get it why yeah. they insist. They they literally throw it away, yeah. uh, and it makes me crazy that yeah. I can't buy a ripe pear for dinner tonight. That's right. You can buy a ripe avocado. There we go. They you should buy use, a ripe tomato. They should make a new section in the store. Yeah. Just that would help with food waste. Let people, yeah, let people do use yeah. it the way they want. All right, up next, it's a food and wine list of things that are staples in their pantry. I want to know if you agree, Chef Terry. On Cairo, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Okay, I'm ready. It's time for the Hot Stove Society Show. Returning to talk about pantry items. Pamela, tell us about where this segment came from and... And uh, I know there's one item on here that would never, here's two negatives in a row, would never not be in your pantry. I try to keep an eye on the Food and Wine magazine Instagram site, and I think success to creating delicious dinner is having a well-stocked pantry dollop no matter what you're creating and you say that just in case like i need a bit of this or i need a bit of yeah something needs a little lot especially when you haven't planned too much and it's pretty much like spur of the moment your friends are coming over yep it's like yeah sure i'll make dinner and then you're looking through your pantry going okay so what are we going to make oh here's some pasta here's uh yeah i can use some of that you know well i think this list is more about condiments and things like that so that's why I was attracted to it. But I wasn't satisfied with their list. What is missing there? Or tell us what's on their list and what your number one missing item is. On the list, fish sauce, sesame seeds, tamarind paste. That's odd. Spam. Coconut flour, which I did not know about and I am going to buy. Zatar, togarashi, anchovies, lemon sea salt, yeast, almond butter, cornmeal, Lipton onion soup, and of course, pasta beans rice. <laughs> but... They left out the critical element of mustard. Mustard. <laughs> Can you imagine going to the Hinkley household without a jar of mustard? That well, would be I'm, shocking. I know that if I ever go to a house, I'm bringing some mustard with me. Cause yeah. El Forte, right? Or Amore. Can, can can Amora. Amora. But the well, other critical one, and except my husband doesn't like it, but I would put it in everything. Preserve lemon. Yep. Yeah, I don't my love favorite it flavor. Is you it? don't like it either. I don't love it. Yeah, it's not something I crave. I, love I, it. I like preserved lemon. I'll take lemon fresh lemon over preserved lemon mm-hmm. any day. Yeah, I like preserved lemon too. But um, I think that um, chili crisp, which is we talk about this oh, on this show yes. all the time, is if you've never had it, it's okay. But you should have it. And uh, once you have it once, man, it's hard. Every time that I have a lack of imagination, and I'm going. 
I need a little spruce into something. Guess what? I go open the fridge and I go, of course I'm going to use the chili crisp. Mm-hmm. It makes a dish just ramp up one level up in one second. Well, uh, the the item on the – let's just take spam out. Who cares about that? Yeah. But, uh, there's a couple items on there that I thought were really good, like fish sauce. A lot of people don't realize how oh, yeah. versatile fish sauce is. Like if I'm just making a little saute of vegetables and butter, let's say it's – Cabbage, zucchini, and carrots or something like that. You know, it's what I have left in the veggie drawer. By adding fish sauce uh, to that, maybe with a little fresh dill or a little cilantro, it changes it dramatically. Yeah, and very it's, much. It's very fun to have fish sauce in a pantry. Sesame seeds, eh, I'd rather have sesame paste personally. I think it's more mm, versatile. Actually, I prefer to have sesame, toasted or sesame, sesame oil. oil. Yeah. yeah, that's pretty good. I have more usage out of that. I thought tamarind paste was interesting because I don't use it a ton. Yeah, me neither. Uh, but it adds a beautiful sour to anything you're making, like yeah. a hot and sour soup or or any sort of like like a tamarind barbecue sauce. Right. Or it really is an interesting flavor that I'd like to explore more. Right. But it wouldn't have occurred to me that that had to be in my pantry. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And zatar, I have plenty of zatar. I love using. How do you zatar. use your zatar? Do you use it in any other way? Mostly, than just as mo- a dip. I give you a quick. Uh, you know, I love to use the um, hummus from. Um, Mamnoon, yeah. yeah. And uh, when I serve it, I like to serve it with a little bit of olive oil drizzle on top and za'atar. Mm-hmm. And that's one place where za'atar really shines really well. Mm-hmm. Um, that was taught to me by my buddy, Moroccan buddy, uh, Yazid, who told me how to do that. But mm-hmm. um, I'd never had done that before with za'atar. And once he said that, I tried it. And I was like, man, this is like... So delicious. Yeah. It works really well. So that's one way to use it as a... A lot of people just serve it in a little bowl on the table with oh, yeah. a piece of olive oil, and, or with a piece of bread and olive oil. Yeah. And you kind of dip it in or sprinkle it on your bread. Yeah, yeah. it's a very friendly uh, condiment. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not, it's not like, uh, I mean, it's not ground cinnamon or anything like this. It's very friendly in terms of eating it by itself mm-hmm. uh, or with a little bit of olive oil. It's really delicious. So one of the things on the food and wine list that I keep in my house that I don't think a lot of people do is, is togarashi. Oh, yeah. And partly because I have it in my own line, I make my own version of togarashi, a Rub with Love Tokyo Rub. Uh, and it's a mixture of seaweed and a couple of different kinds of chilies, some sesame seeds. Uh, and it's, it's a brightener. Right. It's like you would use, uh, in, like salt and pepper, but like if I'm having a bowl of chicken noodle soup, I will sprinkle my togarashi oh, over top of it. Or if, if I'm having some steamed soba, uh, I love it with a little togarashi right. over, over top of it. The I think it's an umami kind of definitely of a flavor because that's something that definitely enhances your, your finishing uh-huh. product, your finishing dish. Same thing with anchovy paste. You know, they have anchovies here. I would be more inclined to have anchovy paste than anchovies because it keeps better and it's also... Something that can squeeze a little bit into mm-hmm. any sauce or any dressing or whatever that yeah. I'm making, you know, finishing a soup, whatever you're doing. And uh, there, there's a bunch of things in tubes like that that are available now that are so much more efficient. Oh, absolutely. Than opening like you used to have to open a little can of tomato paste, and then what do you do with the rest, right? right. But now you buy tomato paste in a tube, and it works beautifully. Yeah, harissa in a tube, absolutely. Uh, chipotle you yeah. used to have to open it every time a can. But you can only use like a tablespoon because it's yeah. so hot. Correct. So now you get a tube of uh, Chipotle to keep it in the fridge. There's a, there's, uh, those are pantry staples as far Correct. as I'm concerned. Yeah, the idea of the tube is fantastic. I mean, they've been using it in Europe for much, much longer. Yeah. When I was a well, child. Well, we've been using it in our bathrooms and toothpaste exactly. forever. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and, so, Sean, you had an idea, too, for your pantry staple. 
Uh, well, just a couple things. I definitely like to keep uh, some kombu on hand. Just yes, for a quick, seaweed. You know, uh, yeah, just for a quick, you know, simple broth. Um, wakame is always good just to have on hand. It's also a superfood, which you don't see a lot in the pantry. So I kind of like so that. So wakame is a mix of seaweed? Yeah, just right? dried seaweed and just a quick rehydrate. Goes yep. straight in a lot of different salads. Um, and I, I just thought... Hot sauce should have been on yeah. that list, even though it's not as esoteric as it You've used to be. You've got some hot uh, sauce, baby, tonight. That's right. I just wanted to see Terry sing, yeah. sing a little hot What's sauce. your favorite hot sauce to you? I keep Chipotle Tabasco as my favorite because it adds I, a little smoky quality to it. I love the Chipotle, lot. yeah, for that reason. Um, and uh, Crystal Hot Sauce I like. Crystal, it, it's, classic New Orleans. Yeah, because it, it's nothing crazy by itself, but it works in a lot of different, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of basic, just heat and vinegar goes well in a lot of different yeah. kind of yep. soups and all right other things they keep in their pantry lemons of course sea salt and now i do find myself i wouldn't have guessed this 20 years ago but i do find myself with four or five different salts that i use for different reasons in my pantry yep they're all if you had finishing to pick salt. one what would you what would you take chef well for finishing i would pick the lava salt i love the the flavor Black of lava salt yeah it's got the light smokiness to it it's got a something to it i did i don't even know if it's smoking i don't mm-hmm. know how they you know what they do to it, but there is definitely a different flavor to it than fleur de sel, for example, is very salt only. It tastes like the, the ocean, yeah. Right, but this one more has, has a little bit more, I don't know, maybe rocky and smoky flavor. Um, and then, of course, the general kosher salt is always on the counter for regular seasoning and cooking. Those are the you know three different kinds of salt I would have. So I thought the, uh, one of the odd ones out here in the food and wine list was the cornmeal. Uh, I use corn flour much more than I use cornmeal. Like use the masa, maseka, right. uh, masa harina, you know, the, the ground nixtamalized um, corn flour. Uh, and I use that in breading for when I'm deep frying. I use it in, for fresh tortillas. I use it so much more than I use cornmeal. But do they use cornmeal, do they think polenta maybe? I don't know. Because polenta is definitely a good staple to have in your... In your um Okay, so the weird ones. Lipton onion soup mix. Why? I don't know. Are you just desperate for a chip and dip? or what? Do you, I'm not sure where that came from. I think from. the saltiness just and trying the to have fun with this onion, list, maybe. onion flavor. Obviously, the spam is a, a little bit out there. Um, and, and, you know, it says uh, <clears throat> almond butter. I have almond flour in my cupboard. I don't have almond butter. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I mean, if I want to make something like frangipan or whatever, I use, I ground the almond and... Just go or buy the frangipan, the, the almond butter itself when I need it, but I don't yeah. keep it in the house. I know. And what else would you use it for besides toast? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, that's well, why. You can make frangipan. You can do all sorts of things, but you can also keep whole nuts. It's so easy to make exactly. nut butters in your food processor yeah. that uh, it's sometimes better, just in my mind, just to keep whole nuts of each category. They hold better. Yeah. And then um, make your own butters. And they freeze need, too. They freeze to. well. So. Yeah. So anything else in there that uh, is in your pantry? Quinoa was not in there, and they put, they put rice on that. Oh Even I might draw the line. Yeah. I don't know oh, my God. oh, really? What about things, that, classics that you find, like ketchup and Worcestershire sauce? And I got another one. Dried mushroom. I agree with dried I, mushroom. I think, I think dried mushroom, if you pick some good dried mushroom with lots of flavor, mm-hmm. it's always so pleasant, and we don't think about it, but it's always so pleasant in the winter. You're making a soup. You're kind of like, oh, I need a little bit more... Earthiness. Uh, you know, yeah. earthiness or something. Man, you just throw in some mushroom, then you reconstitute into there. Mm-hmm. 
you just take it to a second level here. Well, especially like a classic soup, like say, let's say beef barley soup. Right. If you use some of the dried porcinis that you can get at the in the vegetable you know department at the Ballard Market, or it's all over the store in different places, it adds a base. Yeah. I mean, it adds yeah. some serious, like where did that umami, where did that come from? What what is that flavor I'm Correct. tasting? It's it's definitely there. That's one way to build your pantry is to sit here and decide whether you agree with Food and Wine magazine. Maybe or not. Your, maybe your listener want to send us some uh, news about what they have in their pantry and we forgot. We missed. <laughs> uh, so I think the real question on the table coming up next is: Should pork tenderloin be banned from the grocery stores <laughs> or not? Oh, that's going to be a lot of to the battleground. We have a little bit. I can only think of one way that I really like pork tenderloin. I'll come back with that on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. So the real question today on the Hot Stove Society Show is, does pork tenderloin belong in your grocery store meat department? We're going to have a throwdown here. Our producer, Pamela Hinckley, it might be her favorite meat on the planet. One of our hosts, Tom Douglas, who is known for... (laughs) Who's known for okay, that speak, guy? Speak about Whoever yourself on the third person. I I like it. Uh, says that I'd much rather I would eat baby back ribs like a thousand times before I'd bother with a pork tenderloin. And why is that, Tom? Whew. There's so many, there's so many <laughs> so reasons. Many reasons. <laughs> so many reasons. Well, then what's the number uh, one well, reason? Well, let's 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 go to Pamela first, our producer, because uh, she's going to set the table with her favorite way to make pork tenderloin, and why you like it so much. It started with kebabs, because uh-huh. it's so easily shaped into skewer pieces, which I love. But then I was relying on it more for super fast dinner, protein sauce, in some kind of simmer sauce. Because okay. I love those Maya Kamal, her Indian ones, and chopped up pork tenderloin, carrots, green beans, perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, I tried to learn how to roast it itself just so I could uh, serve it with a nice crust, but I always overcooked it. Thank God Jackie just gave me a thermopen, so my cooking might get elevated. I like that. You should have had one of those some 40 years ago, but that's okay. (laughs) And not have ruined so many. It's it's kind of a big thermometer that's very legible for us older folks. Oh, yeah. And... uh, uh, it has a long stem on it so that uh, you, you finally can... get to this after how many 20 years yeah. of screaming yeah. you should have I, a thermometer at home. N- I think I'm not going to dehydrate my pork tenderloins anymore. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think so. The question I have when you buy a pork tenderloin at the grocery, you can buy them marinated, right? Yeah. There's a lot of those out there right now. Uh, you can buy them just raw. Uh, do you take the silver off the outside when you no. make kebabs? You simply just chop it up. Yes. Okay, that's interesting. Because Am I, I supposed to? Well, that would be, <laughs> it would be typical to take the silver off, but if you're going to roast it like as a whole piece, that's more that's my silver way tenderizes, so you don't yeah. have to worry about taking that off. And it's the little bit of fat that's on the pork at all. That you that's need. That's a very lean piece. So Yeah, so the, to me, the, uh, just a side note, it would never come to my mind to take a piece of tenderloin like this and turn it into a stew. Yeah. Ever. Why? Because it's a piece of meat that's meant to be just sealed and just serve as. I mean, it's kind of like the breast of the duck. You don't, you don't normally take a, a, a moulard duck breast of a one-pound size and then cook it well down to serve it into a stew. 
usually you use the leg for that. You use the. Well, she is a well done kind of girl. So just so you know, well, it doesn't matter. The point is that even your pork tenderloin, if you're going to cook it all the way, that's one thing. But I would still not stew it. You know, put it into a stew. I would use a a pork second butt. tier, a second tier kind of piece of meat that has more fiber, more muscles, and some fat in it to be able to sustain that cooking than you're going to do in a stewing situation. Yeah, that meat yeah, is lean. Pork tenderloin has no. I know, fat. but that's just her. That's her style. But she likes her meat cooked well done. Although you're getting a little bit more. Oh, I, I'm light years ahead now. I, I can do. I, I can do medium rare almost. I'm just light years ahead. I just think there's so many options in pork, and that pork tenderloin is super lean. It's it's not that it's flavorless. It's just there's just not a lot to it. It's like I don't need beef fillet mignon either. You know, because right. I'd rather have a New York steak that has more bite to it. But in what Terry was saying about a different cut, I think like a country-style pork rib, which is just cut from the pork shoulder or the pork butt, what they call, uh, those kind of things are more stewable and they cook beautifully. Right. And, um, and, and, but I'm with you. I, but I, not, I, not as fast as the tenderloin. I, yeah, I would give you I that. Agree with it you. It's a speed. I yeah. agree with you, then, if you're in a hurry. I mean, if you have a little bit of time, not too much time, and you have everything else ready for your dinner, the only thing you're missing is the protein. It's a great protein to use, no doubt about it. And, again, once it's cooked and seared, once you've cooked it that way, then you can use it and dice it the next day, put it into a salad, put it into different things, and re-embellishing it that way and reuse it in different places. But, or even thinly slice on a nice piece of toast or tartine with some beans or whatever or something, you know, of that nature would make a great lunch, you know, something of that nature. But um, as a choice, I, I'm, I'm, like, I'm with Tom. It, it's the last piece I would take as a choice when I'm at the market. No, I'm with you. I, I don't. I don't. Just like well, there's one way I like it. There's one way I like what it. What is and, it? And I cooked it at Colgate University for Loretta's graduation party. That uh, we were there for the weekend for the graduation, and uh, I cooked. I went to all the local grocery stores and bought all the pork tenderloin I could find because her girlfriend, maybe uh, her, one of her best buddies at the time, Nikki. Maybe anyway, Nick. Anyway, there's a famous dish at the Indiana State Fair, which is a breaded <laughs> pork tenderloin cutlet that's huh? on a soft kind of hamburger bun. And uh, so I made a f- 150 pork tenderloin sandwiches for this little party that we were having at some house at Colgate. You know, for this little party for the graduation and. That's the the first time I had cooked it in forever, and the last time I've cooked it. <laughs> and so that was eight years. If I cooked 150 of those, I would probably be also going. She on graduated that. 2012, so that was uh, nine years ago. Eight years, eight or nine years. <laughs> nine ago. years ago, yeah. And um, but now that you've brought it up, I might have to make a reprise of my famous Indiana State Fair pork tenderloin sandwich. <laughs> Because yep. it is, it's Bring very it popular. It sounds, it sounds like it it's would be blue the blue ribbon material. It sounds like it would be the right usage for that. So that you just take the pork tenderloin and you cut across it like you would a fillet, right? You butterfly it, maybe uh, an inch or two thick, and then you get out your meat hammer and you pound it into a patty. You know, you just break it down, and then you do the classic flour, egg, breadcrumb. You pan fry it, and then you put it on the bun, the toasted uh, bun, like a good trashy what sauce good trashy bun i don't remember if i put a sauce on mustard there or mayo. not maybe a mustardy mayo yeah I mean, that sounds uh, like it would be logical indiana what are you going to use there mayo mayo yeah it could, it could hollywood yeah so that's the last time so have you ever done that have you ever breaded your pork no <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
But why like, do you? Why do you? Laugh I like the way she goes. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> but you, I like. I cook it well done before I put breading around it. <laughs> <laughs> well, right now we're doing chicken schnitzel at the Carlisle Room. Which I noticed has, that. What? What's the inspiration? It's a chicken breast. Uh, I love schnitzel. I was in Vienna. The schnitzel is, of course, they use uh, veal or pork. Wiener schnitzel mm-hmm. uh, over there, but uh, you can make it out of anything. So we were looking for a chicken dish to put on, so we put on the schnitzel. Um, it's very simple. We used you know breadcrumbs. I actually take panko crumbs and I put them in my food processor to make them smaller because they're a little big for this. Right. Uh, and then I pan fry it in bacon fat, butter, and olive oil. <laughs> and then I put a little fresh, you know, to make the it, three major food group <laughs> to make it healthy. I put a little fresh arugula on top <laughs> and squeeze a lemon. But it has become our top selling dish at the Carlisle Room you know, like, overnight. What? People love fried chicken. You know, the classic way is a slice of lemon thin with a yellow hard boiled egg, white hard boiled egg, and parsley. On top of the lemon. That's oh, classic yeah? presentation. In Vienna? Ville schnitzel, yeah. Oh, well, there you That's go. How they, they, they probably wouldn't use chicken. No, they, <laughs> <laughs> they use veal. That's so funny. But, uh, yeah, so there's, lo- there's lots of ways to enjoy pork tenderloin. I'm just teasing Pamela a little bit because <laughs> that was her go-to. Every time we went over for dinner, there was, I know. guess what we're having? <laughs> with, with some farro and some, some red peppers. <laughs> and we'd have the rainbow on the plate because she's, uh, yeah, in her heart, a vegetarian. But we have mustard. Yeah, always have mustard. So, which is, I mean, if you get mustard and pork, I mean, what's wrong? You get nothing wrong not? here. Speaking of making a little fried uh, chicken or pork cutlet to go along, I mean, look at the tonkatsu out of Japan. Mm-hmm. They, they use regular pork chop kind of pork for that, though. But it's still it's, it's pounded and breaded and delicious with that sweet soy and yep. tonkatsu sauce. Uh, anyway, whew, I'm just getting carried away with a little fried goodness. <laughs> Air fryers, do you need one on your kitchen counter? I did a segment for evening, uh, uh, the evening show on this, and I, I tried to show them both against each other. And when we come back, we'll talk about what I discovered about the ubiquitous air fryers that are showing up in kitchens around America, including my daughter, who likes to argue with me about it, about everything. That's normal. I'm Cairo. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Welcome back. We've got another whole hour of the Hot Stove Society Kitchen Show on Cairo Radio. My name is Tom Douglas. And mine is Thierry Rotiro, the chef in a hat. Thank you for joining us. If you ever want to watch us live, I mean, why wouldn't you? (laughs) Despite the fact that we have faces made for radio. um, We do uh, run our show on Facebook Live every week, and you can go back and take a look and see how um, how that suits your fancy. World headquarter of the Hot Stove Society radio show. I know. We're here at the Hotel Andre in downtown Seattle. Uh, let's talk in this hour a few things. Uh, the air fryer craze, it's still out there. I still see them, but I don't hear as much about them as I did. I had predicted uh, a couple of years ago that when you walked into Goodwill in 2023-4, that you were going to face a wall of air fryers, used air fryers. Well, that's coming up. So we'll see, we'll see if, that, if that prediction is true or not. Giving thanks to James Beard and Julia Child for elevating American cuisine. Um, thoughts on pairing food and wine. And then, of course, we're going to wrap up the show with our Food for Thought Tasty Trivia Challenge brought to you by Rub with Love Spice Rubs. Okay, Chefy. Yes, sir. Do you have an air fryer? Uh, no. No. Pamela, do you have an air fryer? I do not. Cat, uh, back there in the corner, do you have an air fryer? She has an air fryer <laughs> lid for her Instapot. Have you ever used it? 
once. No, once. Okay. Sean, our, our, no, Sean has no air fryer. So according to this room, they're not a, a necessary uh, object in your kitchen. According to my daughter, Loretta, who is the one who didn't name her son what I chose his name to be, For Hercules. Uh, <laughs> according to her, air fryers are her life. She loves them. And uh, I would like to, uh, I did a little test. Uh, you know, I do these evening show cooking uh, segments uh, every month, a couple of times a month for the last 10 years. And uh, one of the times during the, the major air fryer craze, maybe a year and a half or two years ago when things were just going nuts with them, uh, I decided to put it up against a traditional kitchen convection oven. Now, I will say that it's different having a convection oven. Like we have a kitchen a convection oven here and an air fryer to kind of see speed-wise because to me it's like... Speed is an issue. Mm-hmm. Cleaning the machine is an issue. Big issue. Because if you have to spend a half hour cleaning the machine to use for 20 minutes, yeah. that's not anything that I want that's to use. Right. Uh, flavor, caramelization is an issue. Like, did you get to that point where your roasted vegetables were really caramelized and delicious? Mm-hmm. And heat. Like, how hot will it get? Right. Because right. I can get this oven at convection up to 500 degrees Correct. with blowing hot air. So... Is it really worth it if you have a convection oven at home to have the air fryer? So she assured me that it was worth it. She says to this, I asked her last night, because I knew we were going to do this segment today. I asked her last night, do you still use the air fryer? Because you're a mom now, and you've got lots of things to do. And She does. And she says she does. She uses it at least once a week. Because now all these kids, you know, they buy all their all their food to go. They they have it delivered to their house. I go over there and look in the fridge, and there's like 15 different leftovers from different restaurants that she just bought from. Not one package, by the way, came from one of our restaurants. Just saying. Um, but um, but anyway, so what do you think about these home appliance? So wait, let's, let's go back to your test. You did the test. I did the test. Yeah, what so what we came out? Know. Um, Oh, so you want to know? Yes. You want to know well, what happened? Watch the show. Watch the TV show. No, just kidding. I felt like it was so much easier to use my oven. And at home, I don't have a convection oven. I have the just a hot, right. a hot kitchen oven, and which I think roasts vegetables beautifully. But it does take longer. So for me, um, when I did French fries in it, mm, I'd rather have deep fried French fries, right? Because right? that's what, <clears throat> part of their claim to fame is that it uses less fat. Well, I had to use a lot more fat on the on the French fries than what it called for, and then when you put them in, the air blows around and blows the fat around, and you end oh, up with nice. a big mess. Oh, nice! Now you mess. get a you get a, a fire in your in yeah. Your so oven. I'd much rather have my little walkout, and I keep uh, my vegetable oil that hasn't had like meat or fish fried in it. I just heat that up, keep the jar, do my deep frying. And then let it cool, and then I put it back in my jar and put it in the back of the fridge, and it lasts forever. So I thought that the air fryer claim was that you didn't need any oil. You could just put no, the no, fries no. You, in there. No, 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 no. You need oh, oil. You, need the, I, you don't need as much. Uh, but you definitely, like, if you're going to roast broccoli or fennel or any of those kind of vegetables, cauliflower, you have to put some oil on them and toss them in oil, put them oh. in your air fryer, and then... So that's a that, game changer. Yeah, that's I, totally I, a game changer for me because I'm like, well, then in that case, it's like, I don't need that. Well, if we had somebody from Cuisinart here to defend their product or any of the makers of air fryers, they'd probably say, yeah, you don't have to have that. It'll it'll caramelize, but it's just, you're going to want to put a dressing on it when it comes out. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> right? Well, even but if, maybe because it doesn't get the fried effect. 
Yeah, no, my biggest, it's just dry. My it's biggest question like, is fried, French fries. Okay, we're talking French fries now. Yeah. If you can make as good of a French fries in an oven like this without using oil, I was, no, I was no, stunned no, no. by the idea that this could possibly be. No. So, you have baked potatoes is what yeah, you have. Okay, yeah. so that's what I thought. I mean, I'm like, there's no way you can have the same results. And I'm with you. If it's going to go through that trouble, just fry the damn thing the way you're supposed to. Yeah. Do it on the stove and make sure you have a big pot. And, and by the way, that oil, just keep it in a cool place and reuse it. I like it in the fridge. Yeah, uh, to in me, the fridge. it goes rancid pretty easy if you yeah, don't just keep it in the uh, fridge. And then, uh, but in my mind, the bigger issue on the air fryer, she likes it, right? It's the right portion size for her and her husband. You know, she, she loves it. And I'm, who am I to disagree? Yeah, yeah. But when it comes to having a small kitchen at home and you have to decide what fits and what doesn't, what are you going to give up? I'd much rather use the oven that I have. Right. Uh, for frying, I'd rather use my wok and use that every time I want to fry something. So now I don't have to have a little fryer. Like Emerald has his little fryer at home, right? Right. right I got right. one right down there here at the hot stove. But I, I like multiple use items. And so that's just me. I don't think the air fryer is worth it personally. Well, if you're limited in space, you have to have multiple use of everything you have. Because mm-hmm. you can't afford to have a tool for everything that exists in the world. So. I think it's definitely a plus on that. And yes, every item you have should be multiple. I mean, you, all you have to do is use one of those sauce spots. You can make a fryer out of that. It's yeah. not that complicated. And I don't even have a, a, you know, a microwave. And oh, I don't I'm have not microwave dedicating either, space yeah. to that either. And uh, so I, I sh- shouldn't say I don't have one. I do have one. It's in the downstairs mother-in-law kitchen. Mm-hmm. So if I want something, I, which I've, you know, it was a, a ridiculously expensive microwave. I, I don't think I've used it other than to thaw dog food. <laughs> Jackie gets her dog food frozen raw, and I, I had to thaw dog food. So I'm sure go. they're going to love that. Uh, up next, what did James Beard and Julia Child do for American cuisine? Two different styles of American cooks. Right here on Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. We are back at the Hot Stove. My name is Tom Douglas. And mine is Jerry Rotoro. What are you eating there, Chef Rotoro? I'm eating a white peach from Prosser. Prosser Farm. Mm. Snuck over there and got some out of that tote. That is so yummy. You said uh, white peaches are essential in your life. Why is that? Why? why no, I that? said they're quite essential. Yeah, if, because yellow. when you get the perfect white peach, uh-huh. I think you've culminated, culminated to the, the top of the pyramid for peaches. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Uh, there, well, there you go. That leads me into uh, our segment here. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, the contributions of James Beard and Julia Child to American cuisine. Uh, I think we all know Julia Child's story a little bit better than James Beard's story. Correct. Um, although uh, Sharon Kramus, a friend of ours here in Seattle, went to James Beard's school down in Seaside, Oregon, when he was teaching down there. So I, I, I learned a little bit more about him than that, but uh, I'll tell you what his wiki page says. So he was an American chef, cookbook author, teacher, and television personality. He's one of the first guys to do cooking on television. Uh, he pioneered uh, television. He taught at the James Beard Cooking School in New York City and at Seaside, Oregon, and lectured widely. And you know why it's important about what he did and the difference between him and Julia. Julia uh, went and went to. Uh, the cooking, the French Culinary Institute, right? right? And brought French culinary techniques to America. Correct. But very much about the technique of cooking in the French style, whereas James Beard, 
he was the guy who taught and mentored generations about what was in our backyard that we weren't recognizing, right? Right. Uh, Regional cooking, local cooking. Local and and celebrating things like salmon and crab. Right. And while we took some of those things for granted, uh, we didn't necessarily elevate them correct in a, in a way and take pride of, about them in a way that the french would do with a magret duck or right. uh, or a champignon of some sort right, uh, right. In the wild or otherwise so they yeah, i mean brought, it was, they came from it from two very distinct different directions correct and both of them had the right idea in terms of basically teaching people how to get in the kitchen and get going with mm-hmm. you know whatever you have that's available locally you're right. Julia was much more based on the on, on the basic of French cooking, and that's what she brought to the you know the try to make it so then you're not so scared of what was then looked upon as oh this is like such elevated a, cuisine yeah elevated yeah. cuisine or whatever mm-hmm. she definitely brought it down a notch to make it so it's a little bit more accessible to home cooks, um, and I think James Beard was more like um, I think James Beard was just a great bon vivant who just loved to cook and. Most importantly, love to eat. Mm-hmm. And I think because of that, his passion was reflected by him doing lots of research and lots of uh, friendship with many, many great connections of people in the food industry. Whether it was, you know, like in Oregon, like you said, elevate everything that was available well, was locally. Born in Oregon, that's why that happened, right. to, happened to be there. Yeah. Right. The, uh, the whole Julia Child uh, Coming from the spy, the NSA or the spy situation with her husband Paul, and that was so strange. And then huh? transitioning into cooking and food and television in her fifties uh, is pretty amazing. Yeah, uh, that she still had a forty-year career on television, and she didn't even start till she was in her fifties. Right. No, I mean she she did she did an amazing job. I think her, her personality was the vessel that helped mm-hmm. you know carry all this knowledge and all this. Um, uh, forefront of approachable cooking in some ways of French cooking. At the same time, she was pretty alarmed about you have to follow these rules. You know, mm-hmm. she was trying to make it so that you know you need to do this in order to achieve that. Right. You know, so she was she was good. I think she was a great teacher. When you look at her on her TV shows, you definitely have a feel like you're in the kitchen with her, which I think is often when chefs are on TV, you don't feel that way. You feel like they're teaching and if you don't understand what they're saying, you're yeah. just not understanding. When I first moved to Seattle, I was 18, 19, I was turned 19 on the road um, uh, from the East Coast, and I got here, and I was had just been cooking for six months at a place called the Hotel DuPont in Wilmington, mm-hmm. Delaware, uh, and maybe seven months. But I didn't think much about food until I got here, and I started hanging out with friends that we would, you know, re- restaurants became our lives. Every penny that we had, sometimes rent money, right. would go to eat in restaurants. And we'd travel to Portland and Vancouver and, and this place and that. But I really think the person who elevated the recognition of food and what it was hap- that happened to be in front of you was John Raleigh for me. Oh, yeah. Who is the guy who kind of started the whole Copper River salmon Oysters. craze. and. It, Oysters, yeah, came later where he promoted oysters like crazy peaches. Right. But he started to recognize and to celebrate the proper way to bleed a fish. You know, he tried to talk the fishermen up there into doing a better job with the fish instead of just putting it all in one basket and into a cannery. Or, okay, we got three kings and two sockeye. You know, celebrate the, the higher quality fish, handle it properly, get it down on an airplane quickly, and get, get it into more market. more money for it. 
a double, triple the money. The business that goes with it. Triple the money for it. And, uh, but it's also what you realize is like, why at the time when I first got here, a king salmon was treated like chicken. Yeah. You know, and it's not, right? It's it's a king salmon and it's spectacular and it's not chicken. No. And so I think recognizing that was what James Beard was really good about. Right. And certainly in our area, John Raleigh was uh, recognizing and celebrating and making sure you treat certain food products with the elegance that they are. Right. That they've achieved. No, and I think it's very funny because you look through history and you look at all those people who were so-called ambassadors and they are, you know, ambassadors in many mm-hmm. different regions of the world. And, but it's always amazing to me that somebody has a lifetime dedication to just promote that and actually succeed at it. Mm. Because some things, I mean, when you think about America in terms of culinary food in, you know, up until, what, 75 years ago, like you said, there was, people were not paying attention to that. They were, they were just like the rest of the country. They were... You know, cooking out of the freezer or whatever, mm. whatever was the fashion at the time, but certainly not. We're going to the market. We're going to buy your product. I mean, there's always some people who did that, but it wasn't the mainstream. And we're, we were always the country of innovation when it came to freeze dried canned right. foods, right. freezer foods. You know, <laughs> making life simpler. Infant formula, taking all the natural stuff and kind of. The whole idea was you don't want to be bogged down in the kitchen. Exactly. You want this is so much easier. This is a better way. And it turns out it was exactly the opposite, right? right? We were taking ourselves out of what was lovely, delicious backyard food right. and turning it into some uh, agricultural conglomerate that controlled how we ate, what we ate, when yeah. we ate it. Which so. is also why the kitchen was unclosed with a door and everything. Now it's all open. People are opening the kitchen to... Because that's where you spend most of the time. Right. I mean, when you invite friend over, uh, you know, two thirds of the time he spend in the kitchen, one third he spend in the dining room. You know, well, most of my friends table. spend it in the dish area because they have to. Be, <laughs> <laughs> I make them do the dishes. Those are the your old friends. <laughs> exactly. I think you nailed it, Tom. That for me, James and Julia brought Americans back to cooking and not using the industrial right. products. Definitely. Yeah, just the American, just the uh, celebration of the process. Yeah. Which is really... Um, we needed that little kick in the pants. Because, man, in the 50s and 60s, there was an all-out attack I on know. Yeah. Uh, the elegance of cooking. So, Well, they removed people from the kitchen, which is so silly because it's always the half of the, of the house. All right. It might be time for our food and wine pairings. And we've gone about round and round about this for many, many years. And are there perfect ones, and do they really make a difference, or should you just drink what the hell you want to drink? Yes. Well, don't answer until we come back. On Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Welcome back. It's the Hot Stove Society Show on Cairo Radio. I'm Thierry Rotiro, the chef in the hat. And I'm Tom Douglas. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about food and wine pairings. And uh, Pamela used to manage a wine shop and used to give out all sorts of advice when people would walk up out of the Pike Place Market. And she was the manager of De Laurenti's wine shop at the time. I used to sell her wine, if you can imagine that. Wow. That's uh, a long time oh, ago. I didn't sell her much because she was very snooty. Uh, but uh, Still. Still. Still is. But uh, people would walk up and they'd just been to City Fish or to Pike Place Fish and they had a big package of salmon in their hand or a big beef steak from Don and Joe's or 
How would you start the process, Pam, when it came to saying, you know, for someone who was, I'm going to go home, I need a wine to go with this, I'm having salmon, and I'm having, what kind of questions would you ask to get to a wine selection? It was very humbling to work retail, because I have strict biases about wine and food pairings, but I learned very quickly that what I think doesn't matter. Really? (laughs) Because there are people that love what they love and they want a big rich washington cabernet with a beautiful piece of halibut Mm -hmm. and uh i it it then became my mission to figure out how to do that because you you can't tell people that they're wrong my my most important function as a wine merchant was to find things that made them happy Mm -hmm. correct uh so you've got to start with questions. And also, you have an extended palate than many people don't have. So that puts you on a different level in terms of what you're looking for and what you already know. I had the advantage of working at a winery for three years. So starting with understanding fruit, alcohol levels, ripeness, and acidity uh, are are part of my palate and right, discerning right. what what's important. So it's so. also part of your joy. You teach classes, wine classes here all the time at the hot stove. So it's yep. part of your joy in life today too. Because I like for people to become as informed about their choices. So when they're stuck in uh, QFC in Central America, you know, they've got enough knowledge to know how to pick something. That they're going to love. Right. Okay, so let's go back to your original stated problem. Somebody walks in with a pound of halibut. They're making dinner for their honey tonight. And they know that their honey loves uh, big Cabernets. How do you get around that? Because honestly, it's not going to be good with the halibut. It is not. Okay, so how do you get around it? How do you talk them off that cliff and, and get to the, the, the wine that you think will be going best while keeping them kind of uh, happy? You know what I mean? Or not fe- making them feel small. Knowing enough about the vintages and producers uh, to suggest something that was from either a lighter vintage, so not as much concentrated fruit, and something that wouldn't have as much tannin. So they could uh, definitely slather some mustard on that Uh halibut, and then a Cabernet could work. that's, That's a very, very knowledgeable approach. You know, you could also shift to maybe a little bit different of a wine, like you know, go into the uh, maybe Beaujolais or something a little or bit lighter. Or Cabernet Franc has been, well, Cabernet I think Franc, we've yeah. all had good luck yeah. with the versatility of Cabernet Franc Which, because you know, it doesn't have that weedy stemminess that Cabernet Sauvignons have. And, right. But then you're still honoring their request because you can tell them that it's a sister varietal. Yeah, exactly. Right. And it's, it's robust and it's, uh, you know, it's masculine. It's just as big as... It's not. I wouldn't call it as big. But. Well, not as big, but it, it's, it's just not. I think it's, it's definitely in the red section. You know you're drinking a red wine. You know you're drinking something that still has some mouthful to it. It's not. Uh, yeah, it doesn't have as thick a skin, so it right. doesn't pull out as much. Right. Tannin. Um, yeah. Exactly. So we all know, or at least it's been 20 years now, that everyone's been trying to drink Pinot Noir with salmon, which was against the, all the rules when it happened. So how did that come to pass? You were of that era in the wine shop, and you transitioned from no red wine with fish to all of a sudden Pinot Noir is the perfect match with salmon. How did, Absolutely. How does that, how does that match? Well, I also think it dep- the whole different style of Pinot Noir, which is something, again, back to having an amount of knowledge of, 
certain things mm-hmm. helps uh, tremendously to make your choice or ask for your wine mongers to make the choice for you. But I mean, I think to me, let's say you think of a, of a nice uh, eerie Pinot Noir from Oregon versus a Nuit Saint-Georges, which is also a Pinot Noir from Burgundy. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go with the eerie definitely with my salmon Absolutely. versus going with a Nuit Saint-Georges. Cause and what are, you, what are you picking out in that, uh, in that Pinot compared to the Burgundian one? What are you picking out that goes with that Well, fish? to me, it's much more like berry, like strawberry, a little spice. You know, there is, it's a little bit lighter of a wine in mm-hmm. terms of the palate. When you're, when you're drinking it. So the match to the, to the salmon is much easier to just go across as a bridge. You know, it's, the bridge is not so high. Well, if you go Nuit Saint-Georges, which is a much more robust of a, of a Pinot Noir, much more thicker and much more, um, it's got much more acid and it's, you know, in your face kind of Pinot Noir, mm. uh, it's going to be a lot harder to the salmon. So for you, the berry component is important in the it's Oregon wine. Then. Correct. And then, so it has nothing to do with terroir because these salmon no, 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 no. are traveling the rivers all through the Willamette and that whole Oregon wine country, and of course on our coast. So we always would say, like the lamb from uh, right from Normandy and, and that area has the taste of the salty Correct. thyme, the wild thyme that they Correct. eat. So you don't think there's anything to do with the rivers that go through? No, I don't. If, I don't put correlation between a, <clears throat> a terroir a terroir between the, the fish in the ocean and in the river versus the land and the dirt. I don't put that connection. What I do the connection with is how does it feel in the mouth when you're taking your salmon, you take a bite of that dish, and then you drink a sip of the wine. What's going to happen next? Mm-hmm. Are you left with a metallic flavor? Are you left with uh, like your face, like your mouth cannot even taste the salmon? Or are you, you know, that kind of reaction. Mm-hmm. And to me, I think it should be a marriage, not a, a confrontation. You know, it's like it oh, should for be. sure, yeah. You know, and that's what you're looking for in, in a good wine pairing, I think, is a marriage, not a, you know, it should be a smooth transaction, not a confrontation. Do people get carried away with their food and wine matches? Is it that hard, really? Because we make it sound so scientific. It, it shouldn't be. Yeah. No, you it's know, not. <laughs> and, and I think that's what I'm saying by... You know, if somebody came to me and did the same question, I would go Cabernet Franco. I would go even Gamay. I would try to... But you would you never know, t- try to steer them to a white. No, because they want a red. I mean, somebody who starts by wanting a, a, a Cabernet, a young Cabernet, you, you're not going to go to the white. Yeah, obviously. but if you go to a Burgundy that's got a lot of oak on it, you, you pick up a lot of that, you know, outside of the tannins, maybe you pick up a lot of that wood character. Yeah, that Cabernet but might have. I don't think that's what that person. I think it's a, it's the next bridge. The first bridge is to move away from the cabin to maybe something a little bit softer, mm-hmm. and then move into the next step after that. Is hey, have you ever tried white? Oh, I don't drink white. Do you know how many people I've heard in my life say yeah, that? No, I don't drink whites, and I go, oh my god, it's like I don't go to, uh, I don't know, I don't go to Asian restaurants. It's like yeah. what? What do you mean? <laughs> Do you know how many different kind they are? Right. Well, I think um, getting to what the food preparation is and the style uh, is the best place to start because you want to match what you're creating with the food and not, as you said, not fight with it. Cause, right. Um, so f- take the fish family, for instance. Those that are fatty are so complicated. Yes. Right. Uh, those because, are hard to go with because red wine. Because of... Yeah. The oils that, that they just 
battle. Yeah, you don't take a grilled mackerel and mix it with a nice cab. No. <laughs> I find grilled fish hard to match with. Absolutely. Because it gets fishy on the grill. Right, right. And so um, I find that that's a tough one. Okay, so right now it's, we have two minutes. It's halibut season. I just saw big chunks of it at, at the grocery store. Miss um, Wine Expert, uh, what are you going to send people home with today? From your typical wine shop that they would Bandol have. Rose. Mm-hmm. Bandol Rose. Bandol oh. Rose. So I think that's a <laughs> it's a, you know something right in the middle. You get the benefit of a bit of extract from the skins, but you really get the brightness of the and fruit. Yeah. Of and the my, many consider the best rose on the planet, too. Yeah. So it's, it's about 60 bucks a bottle, but it, it's an expensive it's, rose, it's, yes. It's delicious. Yeah. Very, very good. There are yeah. some producers besides Tempier that are yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, dear. That's true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, well, that's interesting. I, I, uh, to me, to go back to the reference of um, many time in the beginning of Rovers or during the Rovers time, when I would make a, a salmon, let's say I would make a salmon dish, I would always think of if, what I'm, if I'm going to match it with a Pinot Noir, for example, like a Burgundy, the first thing I would do is go, okay, I'm going to make a red wine reduction, a Pinot Noir red wine reduction to go around the salmon so the transaction is not so abrupt from the salmon to the Pinot Noir. Which is another thing. Bridge. Yeah, you enlist the help of the wine in making exactly. the wine. Make it friendly. The wine match. Yeah, yeah. so the, the sauce in the salmon matches the wine and make, creates that bridge that you need so it's not so abrupt. Yeah. I think you know what you're doing, chef. All right, it's time. <laughs> it's time to get our chef, Annie Elmore, over here. Uh, she is going to help us uh, uh, decide who the winner is today of our Rub with Love Food for Thought Tasty Trivia Challenge. That's coming up next. Don't leave. We're going to be right back on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. It's time for Rub With Love, Food for Thought, Tasty Trivia. This uh, segment is brought to you by Rub With Love Spice Rubs, made in my Ballard Warehouse out there at 52nd and 14th, where you can also get pizza to go, oddly enough. Uh, Our rub brings extra layers of flavor to just about any meal. Of course, pork tenderloin can be dolled up with Rub with Love. This week, this week's winner will get a terrific prize selected by Carol Bausch, our Rub manager. Pamela, will you tell us what that is and how do you play the game? Triple garlic teriyaki sauce, of course. The Chinese 12 spice is a winner rub. And as a base, pork rub. Sometimes Carol likes to blend rubs, and I think that would be perfect. Our pork rub works really good on fish tacos, too. Just so yes, you know, we I use about it. Fish. Yep, yeah. I use it a lot on fish. Each of our three contestants is going to get five questions. Some are related to today's themes. Uh, the loser with the least amount of correct answers has to pay the shipping of this prize to Shannon Morrison because she joins us in her enthusiasm for Chili Crisp. Oh, nice. Yes. yes. Well, Annie Elmore is going to play today because she crushed us last week. We want our <laughs> sweet revenge, and uh, we're going to get it. By golly. I'm waiting. Annie is one of the chef instructors here at the Hot Stove Society and is in the middle of a Hot Stove Society spring roll project yes (laughs) so thank you for your time annie break away anything for tom good uh we start with terry traditionally terry number one while filming baking with julia how many pounds of butter did julia use oh my god a lot it aired for four seasons so that use that as part of your metrics from 96 to 99 i would say 327 pounds 
Wow. It was 753 pounds. Okay, oh. I was halfway there. James Beard was known to be a bit of an exhibitionist. I imagine when you've been back to the foundation in New York, you might have visited his house. Yes, I did. Do you remember any of the peculiarities about his house? The shower? Uh, the bathroom? The shower? Yeah, yeah. shower. It was the shower, in yeah. fact, because it was an outdoor shower which mm -hmm. overlooked the garden in full view of yeah. all his neighbors. Yeah. <laughs> what? Which, which, <laughs> I've never contacted any of the neighbors, but I'd be curious to hear about this. <laughs> I think they moved. <laughs> which is louder, uh, the pig squeal or the Concorde jet in terms of decibels? I'm going to go with the pig squeal. That is, in fact, true. Pig squeals range around 115 decibels, and a Concorde jet is usually under 112. That was enlightening. <laughs> <laughs> Especially because we have no Concorde left, so yeah. that's good. <laughs> what um, important and popular medicine in the United States is made from pigs? Um, I'm going to say antibiotics. That's Insulin. Oh, Insulin. yes, of course. Of course. And number five, how many grapes does it take to make a standard bottle of wine? Or we'll take pounds or number of grapes. Five pounds. 2.5 pounds. Around 200 oh, grapes. Oh, I was using a magnum, sorry. Okay, it was a magnum. <laughs> <laughs> Good save. Wow, two out of five. All right. Oh. Dang. Strong. <laughs> If two is strong, good luck. Good luck, Annie. Good luck. Two is strong, so... Uh... Annie, uh, Julia Child was too tall uh, to go into the service, but she felt uh, compelled to serve her country, and she ended up working at the Office of Strategic Services. What is she known for developing while she was working there? Um, During World War II. Pants. Pants? Because <laughs> <laughs> she's so tall, she can't find any pants in the store. That's awesome. I love I that is true. She, she spent her time uh, completing exciting tasks. Most notably, she was responsible for developing a shark repellent to help keep sharks away from the underwater explosives. Okay, that's oh, much wow. better than pants. <laughs> uh, what was James Beard's uh, favorite herb? Thyme? Tarragon. Oh, so close. <laughs> so CT, both yeah, start no, with a T. Both with a T. <laughs> True or false? Pigs are smart. They can learn to push a lever in the barn to get a drink. Uh, over the years, pigs have been taught to uh, pull carts, dance, race, and tumble. True. It is definitely true. What is a male pig called that is not used for breeding? What's that movie with the spider web? What's that pig called? Charlotte's Web? Yeah. Is that what it's called? Charlotte? It's called Charlotte? It's called Charlotte? <laughs> a male pig that is not used for breeding is a barrow. On average, how much wine does one acre of grapevines produce mm. how many gallons typical, one acre that's typical not a acre lot. does about between five and ten thousand pounds of grapes and we just found out that 2.5 pounds is a bottle so do your math that's a lot of math to do <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna say 
less than 100 bottles. <laughs> uh, about no. 800 gallons of wine. So That's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, she get worn, Annie. All right. I told you last week she crushed us. This week our, oh, our wow. sweet, you sweet guys revenge. Sweet revenge. Feeling revenge. But those questions are hard, Pam. Very hard. All Very right. hard. Uh, Tom Douglas, who had the first show, cooking show, on PBS, Julia or James? On PBS? On PBS. Ooh, uh, James. Julia, Julia. Julia. The French chef. Yeah. Premiered in 63, lasted 10 seasons. That was a quick, the, the, the trick is PBS. I know, exactly. But exactly. Um, James Beard was a significant philanthropist, and with New York Magazine restaurant Critic Gail Green founded an important organization in New York City. What was the name of that organization? Uh, he was as a philanthropist. Uh, he founded uh, Meals on Wheels. Yes, indeed. Um, the organization is still running today, and it gave more than two million meals to more than eighteen thousand elderly persons in New York City last year. What pork product was a key staple food for Washington's troops at Valley Forge in the winter of 1776? Well, it was mighty cold, so what pork product? It was not pork loin, that's for sure. <laughs> no tenderloin for you. Well, it must be bacon. The answer they gave was salt pork. Salt pork, same yeah, thing. Salt pork Would belly. you consider that yeah. a yes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Judge Terry? Absolutely. Tom, in Kansas, how many hog farms do you estimate there are. 2,200. 1,500. Oh, it's close enough. 99% of which are family owned. Oh. Number five. How much wine is in a barrel? 55 gallons. Uh, it is 60 gallons. Should we give it to him? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I mean, goodness. to be that close, he's the first one who's close to any numbers. <laughs> He's got three. He's the winner today, Mr. Douglas. Miss Annie has to pay $7.50 to ship this fabulous prize to our winner. If you want to be part of the show, you can join our community on Facebook Live at Hot Stove Society Radio Show and watch our show uh, live and in person, sort of. Uh, (laughs) The show is produced by Pamela Hinckley. Sean McFadden is our technical director. And our editor is Sean Don't Call Me Del Torre. And remember, if you miss any episode of the Hot Stove Society show on Cairo, you can listen via podcast, Facebook, or just subscribe to your favorite app. Thanks for listening, and have a great weekend.